This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Yeah. All right. All we get started in three, two, one. Welcome back to Coming Clean. Your host, Benji Backer, here. I'm sitting in person in Washington, D.C. with the oil and gas legend himself, Mike Summers. He's the CEO of the American Petroleum Institute and has been uh, with API for in this role for over five years now and has seen a lot of change in the energy space and in the political landscape on this issue. We're going to talk about everything from the, the youth view of oil and gas to the future of oil and gas for the United States, uh, how they view the transition on EVs and how that's going. Uh, before we get into that, Mike, welcome to the show, and thanks for, thanks for having me in the office. Benji, great to be with you. Thank you. Well, before we get into it, let's tell your origin story about how you got into this space, uh, because I think it's important. And I, and I know you have a deep passion and love for the environment, so a lot of people might say, how is that possible? Uh, you were for the evil, evil oil and gas uh, folks, but you have a deep connection and love for the environment. So could you talk a little bit about that and how you got into this? Space? Absolutely. So I spent uh, most of my career in, in Washington as uh, aide to Congressman John Boehner. Mm. Uh, I started uh, as a young staffer in Congressman John Boehner's field office. You're not as tan as him. In Hamilton, Ohio. <laughs> I am not as tan as him. Uh, but, uh, you know, most of my, uh, family background is in the great state of Ohio. Yeah. Um, so I worked for, for Speaker Boehner for almost 20 years with the exception of one year when I worked for President Bush at the National Economic Council. Uh, and then I actually returned to, to John Boehner when he was elected majority leader, uh, and then served as the chief of staff to the Speaker of the House when he was Speaker of the House for five years from 2010 to 2015. So, uh, great, uh, uh, uh guy to work for as an yeah. initial career in Washington, D.C., I spent two years at a different trade association, but then was asked to join API about five years ago, and it's been an incredible journey. Uh, but you're right. Um, I love the environment. I have a passion for the environment. When we, as a family, vacation, we go to the national parks. Mm. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Grand Teton and Yellowstone. We're actually going to Denali at the end of August. So really excited about the opportunity always to get to our beautiful national parks. It truly was America's best idea. And it's an honor every day that, that I get to work in an industry that also honors the environment. Uh, this in, in, is an industry that for decades and decades has, has kept the commitment to, our, to environmental progress. And I'm excited to get into some of the details on that later in the podcast. Well, yeah, I'd love to, to talk about that evolution because I think for a while, especially during the Industrial Revolution, there was this thought process that everything was pretty much, uh, there's endless untapped potential for our world and that we didn't we didn't really have to worry about how much we took care of the environment as as the decades rolled on and as the century went later on into to the later 1900s we started to realize that you know through many mediums we were impacting the environment in a negative way and i think when people think of the oil and gas industry of today they 
they kind of apply what the oil and gas industry did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s to today, even though a lot has changed and there's a lot of efficiency, technology, safeguards that have been put into place. Can you talk about the evolution of the industry as a whole and, and why it is so different today and why people should, should take notice? Yeah, I mean, when you think about you know, the history of our planet, you know, humans really didn't start to thrive until really about 300 years ago uh, when uh, energy became uh, a, a source of uh, development throughout the world. Um, it started, of course, with uh, people using wood um, to, to heat their homes, but it evolved eventually into the use of coal uh, and then eventually into the use of oil and gas as their primary energy source. Uh, you know, along the way, we also discovered that we could capture uh, power from the sun uh, and from nuclear power. Uh, wind, of course, is, a, is an, almost an ancient technology that has evolved over time. And what I'd say is, is that you know, the, the reason why oil and gas became one of the most the important uh, uh, energies that we use today is really just because of energy density. The oil and gas is very energy dense. It is one of the most dense forms of energy that we have. More dense than just about any other power source. That's why that matters. I think there's a lot of people who'd say energy density. What does that mean? Why does that matter? Well, it basically means that you don't need very much of it to power your life uh, at, at a very raw level. And what that means is that uh, we have a lot of oil and gas throughout the world, and we're able to uh, capture that oil and gas and then use it to provide energy for millions and millions of people. The only other source that has more power is nuclear. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, uh, there are a lot of people in the world that really don't want nuclear power. We embrace nuclear power. We want there to be more. We want there to be more energy. We want there to be more wind. And we want there to be more solar power. We're going to need all of these sources to power the future. But we also know that we're going to need a lot more oil and gas to power the future, too. In many ways, oil and gas is a partner to re uh, renewables. You need oil and gas to be provide that base load of energy that we're going to need for decades and decades to come. Especially when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. We talked about that on a few previous episodes. I mean, we all know that the world needs to thrive. And if, if it's going to thrive, it's going to take, well, we don't all know this, I guess, but uh, that we're going to need more cheap, abundant energy for that to happen. And like you said, it could, it could be any energy source, but we're probably going to need more of everything. That's the humanity side of things, which I think is a very important point that we'll touch on more. But there's also the environmental side of things. API's stance on climate change itself has has adapted over the years and has has evolved. And I, I mean, I personally think your stance is very interesting and and we're very supportive of, of the way that the industry has been moving. But can you talk about the evolution that API's had on climate change and kind of of course. In fact, in 2021, API released our seminal project, which, which I think will be, end up being you know, my most important imprint on this organization, which was the Climate Action Framework. Yeah. It was released in 2021. It is a five-point plan of how we think policymakers and the industry should address the climate challenge. Uh, what is great about the API Climate Action Framework is that it is not just about what we want government to do, because we know government is dysfunctional. We know it is unlikely that government is going to take a significant role in reducing climate change over time. So we know that the industry has to be at the table. One of the things that I frequently say is that oil and gas is not the enemy. Emissions are the enemy. So we need to continue to reduce emissions in our operations if we're going to address the challenge of climate change. So the Climate Action Framework, again, it's a five-point plan. Uh, it, it talks about two of those provisions are all about uh, what uh, the, we want, we're asking government to do, but three 
of those are actually what the industry will do regardless of government action. So for example, we're committed to reducing methane emissions within our operations. At API, we have a program called the Environmental Partnership. This is a program where we're actually working as an industry to reduce our own methane emissions without government action. It has been very successful over time. It grows every single year. We have more participants. You can be a participant of the, in the Environmental Partnership without even being a member of API. This is something that we've opened up to the entire oil and gas industry in the United States. We actually just added uh, not just our operators who produce oil and gas, but those that are moving it, the midstream uh, part of our segment. So the midstream segment continues to grow as part of the environmental partnership as well. So we're also talking about improving efficiencies at American refineries. How do we reduce emissions uh, at the refineries that turn oil into the product, projects that, the products that we use every single day, like gasoline and, and diesel fuel? So this industry is committed to it regardless of what government does. Uh, and interestingly, I have 600 members here at the American Petroleum Institute. When this uh, agenda was put forward to the API Board of Directors, it passed unanimously. Everyone knows that we have to have a stance on these issues and we have to do everything that we can to address the climate challenge. I love that. And I love the, the private sector side of it because I think for so many Americans, it doesn't matter politically where they affiliate, just this skepticism that the government's going to be able to tackle these challenges. And as you saw with COVID or any kind of larger problem, it's really hard for the government, the federal government, let alone an international government, which is a lot of times active on climate change, to try to solve something that is a global issue, but has local impacts and local communities that are going to tackle things differently. One of the one of the I'm sure pushbacks that you've had are some of these smaller players in the space that are uh, have that skepticism from decades of being told that the only way to solve climate change is for these draconian measures that are going to come for them and their jobs. How have you worked with those skeptical communities and and brought them along, or has it been difficult, easy, uh, and what does that process look like? So let's take the premise first of all, um, which is that that government should always be at the forefront of these decisions. So when I was on Capitol Hill, uh, there was a bill that came through called the Cap-and-Trade Bill, Waxman-Markey. This was a bill by, uh, by uh, uh, Congressman Waxman and Congressman Markey in the House of Representatives. It was a cap-and-trade bill uh, that uh, when I worked for House Republican leadership, we were very concerned about this bill. It ultimately passed the House of Representatives, failed in the United States Senate. Here's what's important about this little anecdote. When they were trying to pass Waxman-Markey into law, they projected what emissions would be uh, under the Waxman-Markey law. Uh, and they had certain projections of how emissions would go down if cap-and-trade was put into effect. So we recently looked at that old analysis. And the truth is that it is because of this industry, we've actually been able to reduce emissions uh, significantly more than was projected under Waxman-Markey, under the cap-and-trade bill. Why? Because of the power of the fracking revolution in this country. When we were able to figure out new ways to get more oil and more gas out of the ground, and because we were able to get more natural gas out of the ground, we were able to replace coal as the primary source of power in this country with natural gas, which is for 50% more clean than coal. It is because of the private sector and private innovation from the oil and gas industry, not because of a mandate, that we've been able to reduce emissions more than any other country in the world. It is because of that fuel switch. That's the power of the fracking revolution. We all know that fracking gets a, gets a bad name, but it is the key reason that we've been able to improve environmental performance in the United States. 
In fact, 60% of that re emission reduction was because of the fuel switch from natural gas, from coal to natural gas, not because of more renewables on the market. So, first of all, the premise has been completely blown away that we need the government as the, as the way to get this done. And I'll tell you, I think that the next step change in terms of uh, lowering emissions, again, isn't going to come from the government. It's going to come from this industry. It's going to come from the innovation and the capital that is being deployed now to reduce emissions over time. And I'm confident that this industry is going to be able to continue to improve uh, our emissions profile as a consequence of, of that innovation. I'll give you a great example. Right now, uh, some of the, all the big investment um, from API companies is really on carbon capture, utilization, and storage technologies. That was incented, not mandated, by the federal government through the Inflation Reduction Act, where they enhanced the 45Q tax credit. So we're very excited that we have an opportunity now to deploy carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology at scale in a way that's going to make a significant difference for our environment over time. I love that. And, and I guess, you know, on that note, the efficiency of it in the United States and in places with higher standards could could get better. But as we know, you know, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Other countries like India, China are increasing their emissions. A lot of developing countries are increasing their emissions at a smaller scale than those two, but they still are pretty substantial. How could the oil and gas industry play a role in that? And for those who, are, who aren't sure, I mean, why couldn't some of these countries just start shifting from burning, you know, dung and wood and, and, and coal and move into a more petroleum-based, you know, industry and, and, and decrease emissions like the United States did. Is that, is that something that the industry is looking at? Why is it so difficult? Well, one of the things that, that we could do, the best thing that really we could do uh, to improve the environment, because we have, you know, one atmosphere in the, in, in the world and we all share it. Uh, and, you know, what's, what's happening in China is you're going to see in California two days later, right? That's just how the, the, the environment works and the atmosphere works. So it is in our interest to help other countries improve their environmental footprint as well. So the most important thing that we could do to help the environment is to replace coal as the primary fuel source in China with natural gas. We want to export American environmental performance to other countries. China's the most important one. They have the largest industrial base. They're, bring, they're uh, bringing a new coal plant on almost every other week now. We need to get that coal off the market and replace it with natural gas, preferably with American natural right. gas. And we have the ability to do it. We have more natural gas than we know what to do with in this country. There's 400 years of natural gas under Pennsylvania alone. Another 200 years if you add Ohio. That's not even including the natural gas that's in the Permian Basin or in Texas. That's all associated gas that comes when you produce oil. So we have hundreds and hundreds of years of natural gas. Again, 50% more clean than coal. And if we just did that, uh, that would significantly improve environmental performance for the entire globe. So absolutely. Uh, right now, China uses about 8 million barrels of oil every single day. 
almost every drop of that is imported from somewhere else in the world. Mm. Uh, we want them to be dependent on American energy. We want them to be dependent on American natural gas. Here's the problem. We can't export American natural gas to China right now because we don't have enough export terminals in the United States on the West Coast. If we could build a couple of new export terminals in Washington State or in California or even in Oregon, it would make a world of difference for environmental performance, but we can't get permits to do it because of state-level efforts to keep natural gas export terminals out. And we have a federal government that won't, isn't willing to permit anything, whether it's renewable or oil and gas. So it's actually environmentalists right now, so-called environmentalists, are standing in the way of improving environmental performance, not just in the United States, but around the world. And that is something that your listeners should be very concerned about. It is concerning. I mean, I think back to my time living in Seattle. I lived there for six years until last year, and there's uh, a certain governor there that claims to be the climate governor, and it's one of the few states where emissions have actually gone up in the United States. But it's also a place where they're preventing projects like this from happening, where we could be reducing emissions worldwide if we exported more American oil and gas, but they won't do it because it seems, it sounds, it's, it looks dirty or whatever. But if you look past the surface, it's something that would actually really benefit the world and benefit the very movement that they're claiming to to care about. So how do we, I guess one of the things that was been really frustrating for me as you know a, a young person in this is that you've got that side of the aisle that's that's preventing a lot of this from happening. But then you also have, and obviously in the West Coast, you would be able to build ports in a conservative state. But in there are in conservative states, a lot of efforts to push back against any uh, push to, to, to move towards a lower carbon future because they see it as a threat. How do you find that middle ground in, in, and how difficult has that been when you're pushing back against kind of these very anti-climate action efforts and very anti-oil and gas industry efforts? Where do you find that middle ground? Is there an example of where this has worked? I'll tell you a great example of where it's worked is the state of Louisiana. Mm. So the state of Louisiana is, a, of course, an oil and gas state. Uh, they've been around this industry for decades and decades and decades. Uh, they've been part of the boom and bust in the oil industry for, for many, many years. I'll tell you what's interesting about Louisiana right now. If you, uh, I've done this. If you take a helicopter uh, around the coast of Louisiana, you'll see all these uh, new projects sprouting up. Mm. This is new LNG projects, new liquefied natural gas projects that are, that are growing like weeds in the Gulf Coast of, of Louisiana. And I'll, let me tell you why. And I find this very interesting. One of, an API member company took me down there to one of their new terminals and I asked him, this is not a hospitable place. To get hit by hurricanes every few years, uh, you know, it's very hot in the summer. I, you know, I said, so why, why here? And he said, three reasons. You know, first of all, we don't have any endangered species here. So I don't have to deal with any lawsuits about an endangered species down here in the bayou. Second of all, there's never been an indigenous population down here. Nobody ever wanted to live here in the bayou. But third, and this is the most important, is that we have a government that wants us here. And to me, that was a real revelation. The first two make complete sense. Uh, and it helps that, of course, they're close to the resources. Well, but the government wants them there. They have regulators that continually say, we want more jobs. We want more of these LNG terminals here in Louisiana. And guess what? They're getting more of them. So that is, that's an incredible you know, economic development story in, in a state, in a, a you know, poor state um, that needs more jobs. 
I'll tell you another uh, vignette from that same trip. While I was down there, uh, they were actually loading up an LNG tanker uh, that was on its way to Europe. This was in the you know the worst part of the Ukraine war when we were worried about where Europe was going to get its gas uh, for that winter. And I asked them, "Where's that LNG tanker going?" And the the answer stunned me, Benji. It was going to Dunkirk. Mm. And we all know the seminal story of Dunkirk, when uh, American and French troops were trapped in Dunkirk. Uh, uh, they were facing the German Blitzkrieg that was, that was powering its way through France. And what happened was Winston Churchill called on private bone owners to go rescue those people, those, those French and American troops that were stranded there, and British troops that were stranded in Dunkirk. And they ended up saving over 500,000 people through private boat owners that went across the English Channel to save those people. So it was almost like history was repeating itself. Now there's an import terminal in Dunkirk that took that American natural gas that then was able to help ensure that Europe made it, made it through that terrible uh, energy insecurity period. So yeah. it's, uh, it, this, is, this is the power of American energy. We have to harness it because it's better for the environment, uh, and it's 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 great for world energy security. Well, and I know we're running out of time here uh, because you've got a crazy busy week here. But uh, one final question, and it's kind of a big one, which is that there's a lot of environmentalists who would say there's no reason why we should trust the oil and gas industry. What you're saying might be true. We might we might reduce emissions by 50% by switching to oil and gas, but the problem is still going to continue. And the incentives are for oil and gas to continue polluting the planet. That's what they would claim. What would your response be? And how are you actively combating that sort of mindset, even within the industry? So what I'd say is I'm going to quote Elvis Presley, who had a song that was called A Little Less Conversation and A Little More Action. What I'd say is look at our record. Look at the investments that are being made by the oil and gas industry in the United States, particularly as it comes to uh, carbon capture and storage technology. There are incredible investments that are happening. And then I would say, look at the environmental performance that we have delivered over the course of the last decade. We are reducing emissions in this country at a faster pace than any other country in the world. And it is only because of the American oil and gas industry. They've, we've been able to lower the price of natural gas because we've found more resource. And we've been able to replace coal as the primary source of energy in this country. That is an environmental success story that didn't come from a government mandate. It didn't come from you know, the president telling us that we had to do it. We did it through American innovation. And we need to export that American environmental progress, not just here to other states that haven't yet experienced it, but all over the world. Because that would be the best thing that we could do for the American and the world environment. Well, and I love the message because you're at the crossroads of a word that I think is missing from the environmental conversation right now, balance. You, you are fighting against farther right voices who think that any involvement with the word climate and the environment is, ne is a negative thing. And you're dealing with farther left voices who will say anything related to oil and gas is an evil thing. And you're finding this striking balance between the two to promote economic development and environmental protection, knowing that the industry does have an impact, but that you're going to reduce that impact. But you're also going to not take people's power and energy away from their lives and you want them to have a brighter future. It's amazing what you've done to spearhead this within API. You've received a lot of flack. You've also received a lot of support. The support doesn't really come to mind probably as much as the flack does, and so I want to thank you for how much you've been steadfast in your commitment to the environment, to the energy sector, and to this country and this world. 
uh, it's it's very much appreciated, and you'll go down the history books for it. So thanks for sitting down. Benji, great to be with you. Thanks for all you're doing. And before we jump, the Coming Clean podcast is grateful to be powered by Orsted, a wonderful company strengthening America's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy. Through its integrated renewable energy solutions, Orsted is creating American jobs, investing in American communities, and driving American innovation, all while preserving our country's natural habitats. A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.